tis the season for reminiscence, reflection and perhaps some revaluation. And as you join us this evening, whether that be on the wireless or on the Wi-Fi or on the live stream, in fact, I do hope you are in relaxation mode with perhaps maybe even a mince pie within reach. What a year it has been for Irish artists. We took over the Oscars. We saved cinema. We released albums that are topping critics' polls around the world. And we... Yes, we won the Booker Prize. Thank you for that, Paul Lynch. I am joined in studio for the next hour by a gathering of arena critics to look back over the cultural year that was. On film, John Maguire. On books, Sinead Gleeson. On TV, Jen Gannon. And on music, Zara Hederman. Um, let's just get stuck into the film world straight away. We did take over the cinema world particularly you yeah. go, go back was to Oscars, the Oscars, Oscars yeah. last year yeah, yeah. 5 out of 20 you know like it was so we were, there was such buzz around it there was and what was very uh, encouraging to see was that the entire apparatus of the uh, Screen Ireland and the entire apparatus of the Irish in Hollywood circled the wagons and made as much noise as they could about it because it's we're a tiny country and it's a tiny uh, it's a tiny culture and we have spread it everywhere and uh, we really arrived in force the the green flags were flying in LA last well, year well uh, to, to adapt there are no such thing as small parts there are only small actors there are no such thing as tiny countries there are yeah, exactly. countries that think exactly. they're tiny we, you know? but when once you stride the stage you know uh, you've got to stay there yeah. and you'll see it again for next year there are going to be a lot of Irish well, nominees in, in fact, I'm going to start with... Now, we have to berate John Maguire okay. <laughs> from, from, from the outset. Already? From the it's outset like two minutes past seven. Yeah. It's, you no, know, it's five. I gave, you, I, gave you, I gave you a whole five minutes before I started. Pick four things for us, John, we said. Oh, yeah. Was, no, he well, picked. I could have picked 44, Sean. Yeah, this I know you said. That's, that's, that's why we asked you to pick four. No, I know it's not the rule, but <laughs> 2023 then, was a vintage year. Yeah, so then you picked five, and for the first one, there's two in it. There's two, but I'm actually cheating slightly, I know, Sean, by putting the uh, totally two together. Totally cheating. Oppenheimer and Barbie, but I'm actually going well, to cheat a bit more, and I'm going to take them off the list altogether. They don't need the attention uh, <laughs> honestly no hang on don't an, going, there is don't take them off the list barbie until you tell us why they were there barbie heimer had us all a bit giddy this year they were released on the same day in july everybody went to see them uh, and oppenheimer in particular is a masterpiece a flawed masterpiece yeah. christopher nolan's films had learned killian murphy his first nomination no doubt about that probably a dozen nominations for for Oppenheimer and cinema audiences flock to see a biopic of a 1940s theoretical physicist and you can't legislate for that no. it's a super film <laughs> yeah. but you can't uh, but it doesn't need the attention now it's had its moment and at the end of the year we should focus I think on films that maybe weren't as well seen the other one Barbie and I'll do this very quickly was a cultural phenomenon I mean a phenomenon yeah. it made even more billions than Oppenheimer did it's a triumph for Margot Robbie the star and the producer and Greta Gerwig and it resonated deeply, particularly with female audiences. It became the number one film ever at the Irish box yeah. office. But again, Barbie doesn't need the attention. So well, do you know, stop right remove there. Remove them completely. No, I'm not going to remove them. Oh, because no. you put them as your first choice. <laughs> oh, you reckon? Oh, I'm going to have to trim some. <laughs> that was I'm your first choice. I'm going to have to trim choice. my list. Yeah, you certainly It was at a time uh, yeah, when cinema... <laughs> no, at a time when cinema really needed yeah. Barbie Heimer. And you've, you've, and mentioned, you've mentioned the Killian Murphy aspect here. And let us hope he was phenomenal in the yeah, yeah, I think yeah. everybody everybody but, agrees on that. Let's listen to him in action. Uh, for, uh, the physicist meets, uh, that's uh, Oppenheimer, of course, physicist played by Killian Murphy, meets Matt Damon, US Army General Groves, uh, who is putting together a team to build the bomb. Killian Murphy in the title role, as I said. 
So how would you proceed? You're talking about turning theory into a practical weapon system faster than the Nazis. Who have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? Our fast neutron research took six months. The man they've undoubtedly put in charge will have made that leap instantly. Who do you think they put in charge? Werner Heisenberg. He's the most intuitive understanding of atomic structure I've ever seen. You know his work? I know him, just like I know Walter Bothe, von Weizsäcker, or Diebner. In a straight race, the Germans win. We've got one hope, which is anti-Semitism. What? Hitler called quantum physics Jewish science, said it right to Einstein's face. Our one hope is that Hitler is so, so blinded by hate that he's denied Heisenberg proper resources because it'll take vast resources. Our nation's best scientists working together right now, they're scattered. Which gives us compartmentalization. All mine. There we go, uh, Killian Murphy and Matt Damon in a scene from Oppenheimer. And we all agree with John McGuire. I think that uh, we want to see Killian Murphy getting the, the Oscar nod there. But when, when he was speaking, both uh, Jen and Sinead, Jen Gannon and Sinead Gleeson, I saw, and I think I saw you nodding too, are regarding Barbie. Yes. How good was it in your book, I think uh, Jen? The most important thing for me about Barbie is it's a celebration of girlhood, which is a very, very small period of time that is rarely celebrated because young girls are told to grow up a lot faster than they actually do. And for me, it was an event cinema experience. It was full yeah. of women. And it was the second time only I've ever been in the cinema where there's a spontaneous applause. And there was at the end of Barbie. And it was what the was same. The other time? Little Women by Greta Gerwig as well. And I think well-deserved. And I think um, the writer for the New York Times, uh, Taffy Brosner-Ackner, she wrote this whole article about Taylor Swift, which I know will be mentioning later, about how her music is that celebration of yeah. innocence of girlhood and, you know, uniting girls. And I think this has been the year of the girl in that way, because I think for men, a lot of young boys, they're never told to put away childish things. They're never told to put away their computer games or whatever. And women are told to put away the dollies, grow up. And this was a time where we could actually celebrate that and have something that united us in that. It was a stroke of genius to choose the Barbie doll to make to make the points that Gerwig wanted to make here Mm. in Sinead. Yeah, I remember my daughter saying to me, oh, God, ma'am, it's very feminist when she's seen it. I thought, you know, that's a good thing. More of that, please. But uh, but even the idea that, you know, Gerwig, is now this superstar and I think that even this year lots of the films that I like were made by women you know Carol Morley's Typist Artist Pirates King Sinead O'Shea's Brilliant Pray for Our Sinners um, Clara Dix's Sunlight there was mm. loads of mm. women making film and getting more attention for that kind of work than, than I remember from the last couple of years and the fact that you have Gerwig now is this megastar yeah. with big budget films and films that yeah, make yeah. a lot of money Harper's is incredible director, yeah, yeah. yeah. With uh, Sarah were you going to add into that in terms of the film or do you want to get on to your your, your album choices? Um, no, just to kind of echo what Sinead and um, Jen were saying there with the message with the film and when I was watching as well I just found it huge inspiring to think of young teenage girls and young girls seeing how women can be anything. They could be a judge they could work in whatever field that they wanted. They didn't have to feel that they weren't you know, good enough to do that or that these were just roles specifically for men. I really, really um, enjoyed that sentiment. Yeah, and I know Taylor Swift is on your list and we will come to her <laughs> yeah. but let us start with the the big Irish success or one of the big Irish successes in musical terms this year Lancome just going from strength to strength Yeah and continuing today we saw that The Guardian um, announced their fourth album False Lancome as their album of the year and that has been something that we've seen with all the lists Mm. coming out they topped Uncut Magazine's uh, year-end list and The Quietest we also have to think about as well people like John Francis Flynn who's also working within this field, the Mary Wallopers, Lisa O'Neill as well. And what I have just found so heartening and so exciting about seeing 
Lancome's success, especially with UK and US press, is that they're listening to Irish artists and they're listening to timeless songs that hold their resonance a hundred years and so plus. Mm. And what I thought was really interesting with Lancome and John Francis Flynn with the production of their albums, they really did such a great job of melding the light and the dark with the songs and really reflecting how the world is at the moment. And certainly they don't compromise in the way they give those songs. They're yeah. not they're not playing to some kind of touristy audience or anything like that, as we'd hear in the opening section here of Go Dig My Grave from False Lancome from Lancome. To tell this world that I died for So I just wanted to play that that opening stanza from Go Dig My Grave from Lancome, the voice of Rady Pete there. And as I was saying, Zara, what she does, there's Zara Hedeman choosing our music for us this evening. What she does there, she sings that verse totally a cappella. The music comes in. The radio edit is 4.35, but I'm guessing the song on the album is six, seven, eight minutes long. They're all lengthy. You've got mm. to stick with them the whole way through. And it's easy to stick with them yeah. um, because there's just so much power and world building in these songs. I'm working with John and Spud Murphy in production they've really mastered something very special here and what I think as well is just so great is that these are songs as well that you know Lancome John Francis Flynn they're players who have played in places like the Cobblestone in Dublin for years and years and with the kind of integrity of the songs they would have had to kind of been passed down these songs and what I think is great with these recordings is that they're passing these songs on now to a whole new generation and a much wider audience and it also shows to us just how important infrastructure like the Cobblestones and places like that that nearly disappeared Mm -hmm. in recent times how important they are to actually you know encouraging an industry like that Sinead we we said if we took we've taken over the critics polls in terms of Lancome and how they're doing internationally we took over the Oscars we also took over the Booker Prize this year in many ways Uh, first of all winning it but having two four four short long list list yeah and and again as you were saying to try and there's a lot of these lists around at this time of the year so you'll you'll have heard about you know Oppenheimer and Barbie and all that kind of stuff and I deliberately didn't pick any of the Booker nominees or some of the bigger Booker bigger writers because I wanted to draw attention to kind of smaller sort of things that might um, go under the radar but yeah what an incredible year I mean there was a lot of also phenomenal other Irish uh, like poetry collections and screenplays and all yeah. sorts of things written but um, yeah that shone an awful lot of light on, on Ireland yeah that, that and certainly bit, I mean I, I don't think I think the Pauls both Paul yeah. Murray and, and Paul Lynch getting to well Paul Lynch winning it Paul Murray getting to the short list and Elaine Feeney and Sebastian Barry on the long list you know like it's just Great, great news for Irish literature yeah, there. However, sure. your first choice, um, Kick the Latch by Catherine Scanlon. Uh, this is, if, if when I saw this as a, one of your choices, you know, it, it kind of is classic you in some ways in yeah. that, tell me what type of book that is. And it's quite hard to say what type of book it is. Yeah, it's well, it's a very short book. And I think mm. if you're struggling at all to, to, to read or you feel like you can't face a big 600 page book at this time of year, um, the short book is incredible. So this mm. book, um, this is actually a book that's turning up on a lot of sports lists, believe it or not, because it's a book about 
horse racing. Yeah. Now, you wouldn't think that this is my book of the year, but it absolutely is. But it's because I love Catherine Scanlon's writing. She's published a couple of books before, including a collection called The Dominant Am- Animal. And her thing is to make pages that are chapters that are a page and a half, a couple of lines. So she's into brevity. She's into concision. She's into making things very, very short. And I wondered about those yeah. short chapters. Does that yeah. actually make you read more slowly and does it make you consider more rather than you know No I kind of gobbled I actually gobbled it up because she's such a compelling writer but what she she did this is really interesting Um, she interviewed an ex-horse trainer called Sonia who worked on the kind of gritty crappy American Mm -hmm. tracks you know it was a very masculine world it was like drinking crap diets people not looking after yourself you know violence sexual assault Um, and she interviewed this woman Sonia and decided okay with Sonia's permission I'm going to write a work of fiction so it is that kind of weird hybrid-y thing like that Annie Arnaud does sometimes or another book I'm going to talk about moment but it, it, it's done brilliantly so it is fiction but it's quite journalistic and it's first person but it's utterly compelling and, and is it really about horse racing I mean it's a bit like the rows yeah. are never about what they're about they're about something yeah, else it's, what's it's she like, really talking about here well she's, ta- she's talking about sur- survival uh, and, and you know choosing the life that mm. you want because she grew up in poverty she, she grew up her parents used to rent her a horse by the hour they were that poor so it's dealing about coming out of neglect and sort mm. of bad backgrounds it's one of those books it reminds me of um, Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams Robert C. Thaler's A Whole life you know those books that take a very small uh, the whole arc of a life it's done in about 140 pages and it's it's brilliant to see and to see someone do that very well it's really hard to do as a writer but I just loved it and everyone I've recommended it to has has loved it well so. the brevity thing certainly yeah. is, is appealing because yeah. it is difficult but the sentences to, it's all yeah. about the sentences <laughs> yeah. so good. but I want I, I often find in those shorter books that I do find myself slowing down reading and then going off and thinking which is no bad thing yeah. I suppose either uh, Jen Gannon TV mm-hmm. um, if there's only one well there are lots of things oh, that happen, but there's one see, one um, television series that came to an end, mm. and it, it's brave to do that with a with a, a very successful series. But Succession did it. Succession succeeded. Uh, Jesse Armstrong, I think, is so clever in the way that he decided to call a halt to Succession. I mean, to be honest, he always just thought it was going to be one season long originally, and it was going to be about the death of that media magnate. Logan Roy and about his feckless heirs trying to scramble to the top who would take over from him who would land the throne and it overlasted that it you know it stretched beyond anyone's imagination and I think he realised by you know the third season that because it was such a worldwide sensation that they were boiling these characters down to archetypes because social media does that and he didn't want that to happen he wanted them to get out before they became parodies of themselves the Roy family so this season the final season was an absolute yeah. knockout now, if you're watching the final season, go and put on the kettle <laughs> for a moment. If, if you, and that is if you haven't read a newspaper, listened to an, <laughs> or any, listened to anything in the last twelve months about Succession, or seen anything on the television about this series. Obviously, the death of Logan Roy was the big issue mm. here. And the thing about it was, he didn't leave it until the final episode. I think you know that yeah. was the way that people thought it would end. It would end with his death. No, he pulled the rug out from the audience again, and he did it in the third episode. So after suffering many health scares, the King. Kong Daddy himself collapsed on a plane in a very kind of you know unseemly way had a heart attack and was flying around the airspace where they're all panicking and trying to get the children on the phone to talk to him for the very last time and I think that episode in itself is a masterwork um, it, it unfolds like a play yeah. and you see them all all the siblings like desperately trying to qualify and quantify their relationship <laughs> with their father as he lay dying like you know Faulkner like it's you know this constantly second guessing themselves about what their father's 
legacy should be and that's the way that the series kind of yeah. opens out subsequently. And he did not have much respect or <laughs> for no. his children, let us face it. And that's kind of the, the nub of the series is his attitude yeah. towards them. If you clip that, I think gives a real sense of that. He has just, um, he has been trying to convince them all about this deal that he um, has struck with Matson, and he mm. wants them to go with it. They're not so keen. And starting with Shiv, uh, played by Sarah Snook, they lay out the reasons why they're not so keen. But he is not. He is not for turning. It's Logan Roy, and he usually is foul-mouthed when he's industrial not language. For, we would call it. Yes. He's not for <laughs> turning, as you will hear. Okay. Well, I think I can speak for everyone. Can I? When I say, go ask him for more money. But why? Just good business sense. Got to make our own pile. Oh, like that. Yeah. I mean, it's what my gut is telling me, and so oh, I got to listen to my gut. It's. That's all I got to go on. Jesus. You're such fucking dopes. You are not serious figures. I love you, but you are not serious people. What a wonderful line. You and are not serious people. That was yet. the theme of the whole of the final season. Just the fact that these children left to their own devices, they were not serious people and they could not look after his empire. And, you know, and that's what I think mm. Jesse Armstrong was trying to, you know, reiterate the fact that the Roy's at the end of the day were never to be trusted. They were never to be admired. You couldn't, you know, stand any of them. You can't root for any of them because they were always just this bunch of psychotic millionaires, billionaires and so not serious people. You know, that's <laughs> no. it at the end. Of the day and I just think that it, it, when he when the humanity of the Roy's which was shown through their grief came out it actually was truly it, terrifying yeah, truly it, terrifying yeah, and, and f- a magnificent final season obviously yeah. um, I'm going to stick with you for your second choice in, in terms of TV this is season two of The Bear now I remember you jumping up and down about season <laughs> one and then you jumped up and down even higher when you, when you used to come in to talk about season two yes it's like uh, they elevated from they moved you know so quickly from season one to season we're in a, two we're set in a restaurant again a fairly foul month restaurant for the most part what do I love about swearing so much I mean when you think about succession turning swearing into an art form last seen since the thick of it this kind of carries on Mm -hmm. that tradition and you're in you know this Chicago sandwich spot that was in trouble that was in season one and they were all trying to gather this ragtag group of you know restaurant workers to make it a success now this season is kind of refining it Um, it's going from this shabby local joint to be replaced by something that fuses Carmi who is the head chef his Misha and start training with this kind of homely twist but it's more season two kind of concentrated it burrowed into these characters and that's what made it so appealing and And a lot more to come do you think? A lot more to come and I know people will be wanting to watch this over Christmas and, and gobble it up and episode six which is the one that's going to be talked about the one that where all the guest stars are in it you know spoiler alert yeah. but Jamie Lee Curtis I mean a standout as Carmi's mother and if you think you're having a bad Christmas you're having a tense Christmas just watch, watch this it. with the Baileys and feel great about yourself <laughs> John you, you stuck with the rules for your second oh, choice yeah. you chose you chose one film as a highlight which one was that? <laughs> Martin Scorsese of oh, course yeah. and Killers of the Flower Moon well Scorsese's 80 years of age now and I don't know how many more Scorsese movies we're going to 
see, but this was my film of the year, is uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. The grandest scaled and unmistakably angriest of Scorsese's collection of films about American greed and corruption. I lumped it in with Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street and The Irishman. Uh, And it's a Western, the uniquely American film genre that Scorsese grew up on, and it's his first Western, but it's not some kind of old-fashioned white hat, black hat allegory but the unvarnished truth of a horrible situation adapted from David Grant's remarkable non-fiction book of the same title about the violent origins of America and the nation's Mm. poisoned relationship with its indigenous people. And it's an epic of the old school, Killers of the Flower Moon. It runs about three and a half hours. And even though it's beautifully told and complex, it is difficult. It is not an easy film. It It has difficult themes. It is a difficult history. And it's... It's awkward. Mm. It do, it doesn't flow smoothly. D- DiCaprio and DiCaprio it, plays this Burkhart, this character Ernest Burkhart. He's a useless army cook, dumped demobbed after World War One. Pitches up in Oklahoma in the early 1920s to work for his uncle King Hale, played by De Niro, Robert De Niro, who's a loan shark gangster, preying mm. on the local Osage people who are now among the richest people in the world thanks to the oil that they found on their land, which would, they were thrown onto the land, which was essentially useless, uh, in order to starve them. And uh, they found oil there. And uh, we can get it if we if we didn't get to see it in the cinema, we can get it in, on Apple Plus now. You can watch it on yeah. uh, Apple TV. But this is the, the, people were hot and cold on this film all year, Sean. Uh, for me, it sits very comfortably amongst Scorsese's uh-huh. finest films because this is what happens. This is what you get when you have a director who has spent his entire career, uh, who has been accused of glorifying nat- uh, uh, gangster violence, and he finally just spells out for you exactly what he's been trying to say okay. all this yeah. time about how America is put together. I think it's a masterpiece, no doubt. All right, Killers of the Flower Moon, clearly the one that you're you're suggesting no, people I, might I, stream. I, fantastic. Um, it, uh, your second choice in in, in books, Sinead, I, I think an often underestimated Irish writer, Evelyn Condon. Uh, a phenomenal writer, and we were talking about you know people getting nominated for the the, the Booker. I think Evelyn is is of that standard and is is very underappreciated. She's done phenomenal work, not just on the page and with her anthologies. Her anthology work has been an influence on my anthology work, but she's always been very political. I mean, when she lived in America, she was campaigning for the death penalty. She's a very early champion of uh, seeking abortion rights in Ireland. She's involved in various women movements, you know, Nell McCafferty in the seventies, and the book, her book, it's called Reading Rights, Books, Writing, and Other Things That Matter. Is is kind of a hybrid of all sorts of things. It's it's a memoir about her life. It's a it's a, a story of craft and how to write, but it's also full of brilliant gossip and tidbits about what's gone on in her writing world as well as lots of adversity she faced. She had two children. She was separated. She went to college in Maynooth when she, you know, had had a baby and was pregnant. 1970s and 80s, she had to face down a lot of Including a lecturer assumed she wouldn't continue because she was pregnant. She realised there was no childcare for women so she set up the first creche in Maynooth. Um, She talks about a very famous and influential Irish um, editor, anthologist in the 70s who um, I think basically put a lot of obstacles in her way because he called her work her overindulgent feminist terrain um, and she didn't get uh, published by a publisher in Ireland. So there's a lot of people, um, neighbours, you know, made crank calls, called her judgy because she was a separated woman. And she says at one point, living in Ireland as a separated woman in the 1980s was no joke, but I felt separated by nothing. And then there's this whole other thing. Though, so that, you know, having children very young and then being separated, there's a wanderlust element that becomes yeah. this kind of brilliant Dervla Murphy tra- yeah, travel. She can write travel. She goes to yeah. Australia. She comes back via, you know, Ceausescu's Romania, the Silk Road, Afghanistan. She meets Betty Friedan, the famous feminist in New York and they talk about she tells about meeting mm. Simone de Beauvoir it's also really really funny um, and really brilliant but also it, I, I loved getting to know lots about Evelyn's life as well as yeah. her the way
way she kind of talks yeah. about work, she's talking about Marilyn French, you know, Hardy, Shakespeare, um, uh, Joe Brainyard's uh, I Remember. Right. It's it's a brilliant kind of short, wonderful book. But Reading writes, yeah. books writes. Read Evelyn. I read all of her things. novels. She's incredible. Yeah, the novels are super. The novels. Um, uh, so we come to, that's a, a feminist of the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, Taylor Swift was your second choice. Um, where, why are you choosing her? Is, is it, I mean, she's phenomenally successful. We know, we know that. But is it the music? Is it the cultural phenomenon that she is? What is it that has made her stand out for you, Zara? Well, not because I'm a Swifty, because I'm absolutely not. Um, but I just found her cultural dominance in 2023 mind-blowingly fascinating, especially when we think about 2018, when people couldn't even give away tickets to her reputation tour in Dublin especially. And now we look just even to crunch some numbers on her 2023. Um, 26.1 billion streams on Spotify, most streamed artist on Spotify. Fine Apple. Her era's tour grossed over $900 million in ticket sales. The era's tour concert film has earned over $250 million worldwide. She became a billionaire this year. Time, naturally after all this success, named her the person of the year and making her the only person the, to do it twice. Does the music merit that? Um, I was very slow to come to Taylor Swift and I have to say in this year something kind of clicked with me and you can't deny that she can write such an infectious pop tune and I think that's something that was also very interesting with her this year and over the last couple of years is the re-records that she's done of her first six albums and very smartly that has you know given her ownership of her music but when she's re-releasing an album Speak Now from 2010 which resonated with teenagers back 13 years ago yeah. it's now now resonating with a new wave of teenagers. Now, I'm not going to be cycling home singing her songs on my bike, but I do very much find it fascinating how she and dominated. She's really good though at linking up a kind of kind of cool producers like Jack Anton, I'll be director of St. Yeah. Vincent, um, one of the guys from the National produced yeah. the folklore album. Like she's very kind of canny like that. Yeah, well. the way she, she re- well, yeah. getting getting the rights back for her those early albums was canny yeah. in and of itself. Yeah. Just but that action. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Jen, go ahead. Yeah. Got, like the fans to rebuy the albums and go legitimize them by going, no, these are the right version. Yeah. And you're not supporting me unless yeah. you buy the right version, an American, Taylor's version. Yeah, an American yeah. radio now is only playing the Taylor versions of old songs, yeah. which just shows her dominance. And like and the headlines have all been Beyonce and Taylor Swift have saved the American economy yeah. this year, which is massive. Oh, right. yeah, and the okay. as well. Yeah. The, the movie was massive. Yeah. Yeah, the movie, massive. The, both those movies mm. were, yeah. were, were huge as well. All right, we better move on because we have lots more choices to get to because John's still breaking the rules. <laughs> <laughs> Back in a few minutes' time. Being painted here is kind of a maverick. And welcome back to Friday Night Serena. Uh, this evening we are looking back. Sinead Gleeson, John McGuire, Jen Gannon and Zara Hederman with me in studio looking at literature, films, TV and albums of them and music uh, of the year. I've been picking on John McGuire. I feel I've been rather <laughs> yes. nasty. Yes. So I'm, I'm putting that bah humbug tone that I the had bridge. to the... Yeah, it's it's gone now, John. Thanks, and I'm going to let you choose my film of the year as your next choice. (laughs) Which one is your film of the year? Well, certainly it's up at the very top of the list for me. This is Todd Phillips' Tara, that's what you're talking about. No, it's not. It's Past Lives. Past Lives, Celine Sion. Yeah, Yeah, Celine Song's debut film. I mean, we had a lot of debut films this year, a lot of first-time filmmakers, but uh, uh, there's very few of them that connected like this film did. This is the writer and director Celine Song. An extraordinary debut. It's this impeccably handled romance full of yearning and restraint. 
not only in how, showing how her characters reconnect after 24 years apart, that's the plot of the movie, if you like, mm. and how they treat one another once they're rejoined, but in how she communicates all of that to the audience, that restraint is yeah. rare and special, and that's what makes it such a superb film. And if films like Tar that I just mentioned and Killers of the Flower Moon are these big bone-rattling epics yeah. that are tr- trying to shake you out of your seat, Past Lives is the absolute opposite of that. It's this gossamer light elegant breeze, fleeting memory. But once you see it, you don't forget it. It's a beautiful yeah. film. Let, let's have a listen to a clip because even, even within this clip, you get a sense of just the, the restraint is exactly mm-hmm. what, what is present here. Um, this is a married couple, Arthur and Nora, discussing Nora's Korean sweetheart who has come to visit her in New York. Even when I talk about this film. <laughs> no, you're tearing up. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, you're it, gone it, soft, is, it, is a, it is a romantic it's not a romantic comedy. It's a romantic film that is brilliantly done. Yeah. And um, John McGarrow and Greta Lee are in this scene. Is he attractive? I think so. He's really masculine in this way that I think is so Korean. Are you attracted to him? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. And then he was just this image on my laptop. And now he is a physical person. It's really intense, but I don't think that that's attraction. I think I just missed him a lot. I think I miss soul. I think I miss soul. And suddenly the, the word, the, the city soul sounds as if it's about something yeah, yeah. else altogether. That's past lives. And John, I'm allowing you, for, for your next choice, you actually picked two again. And I'm going to let you discuss the two because they, they, this perhaps showing my bias. Tar. Is this anatomy? Tar of and, no, Tar and Maestro. Oh, Tar and Maestro. Yeah, well, Maestro, Maestro kind of came and went. This was yeah. Bradley Cooper's biopic like of... to hear that. Bradley's well, no, yeah, Bradley won't. <laughs> but it's this kind of biopic of a poorly behaved genius, uh, Leonard Bernstein. It's based on the story of his mm. life, warts and all. For, to me, the film was more about his wife, uh, played by Kerry Mulligan. Yeah. That's where my focus mm. went when I was mm. watching it. But anyway, b- back in... Th- that was released quite recently. It's a true story. Yeah. And back in January of last year, we saw Tar, which is Todd. And you had actually, to be fair, this time last year, you chose Tar as a possible highlight for 2020. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love this film. This is Todd Phillips. It's this roiling fictional psychodrama mm. about a genius conductor's fall from grace that was bizarrely, maybe just on TikTok or something, for a while. People were thinking, who is Lydia Tar? Where is this woman? Where is she now? People thought she was real. Yeah. And that that to, that little dichotomy there was very interesting to me that you had the true story that people were like, well, that's a bit exaggerated. And then you had the fictional story where people are like, this must be true because it, it is so brilliantly made, this film. Uh, it's my pick of the two. It's a phenomenal synthesis of filmmaker and actor. Uh, you have Kate Blanchett at the peak yeah. of her powers and you've Todd Phillips who hasn't made a film for 13 years who is probably the best American auteur at the moment in that he his approach to cinema is mm. Kubrickian he's very yeah. Kubrick and uh, it tells the story of the fall from grace the cancellation if you like to use the language of the day of Lydia Tarr this yeah. incredibly busy woman at a yeah. very busy time in her life she's recording a Mahler's Fifth she's releasing a memoir she's trying to hire members to her orchestra the Berlin Philharmonic uh, she's got this international career and suddenly it all comes crashing down around her and 
it it the film shifts so beautifully. It's in, the yeah, peak it behind the curtain. Exactly, you get a peak half. behind the curtain of classical right. music, which is fantastic. As and well. and sticking with music, but I, I suppose it's been a poignant year. It's the losses of this year in some ways, Sarah Hederman. I mean, they've been phenomenal. Three huge losses, in fact, throughout yeah. the year. It felt kind of wrong to omit, you know, this as part of the the overall year. Look at, you know, Christy Dignam, Sinead O'Connor, Shane McGowan dying all this year, all within the space of about five, mm. six months. Um, and all three artists who, in their own way, were so charismatic throughout their career, spoke out for so many important issues. And at the heart of it as well I feel that with their fans just had such true connections with them where you really felt like you knew them because of like in their songs and in interviews you really got a sense of who they were and what they went through and I think a lot of people found a lot of solace and really appreciated that and what I thought as well was really great I mean with the passing of anyone to people who may not have been so familiar with their work it gives people kind of an impetus to go and see what it is that so many people celebrate Um, I know for myself after Sinead O'Connor when she passed away in July I really really went very deep into you know listening to I do not want what I have not got and I found that even the songs with her passing just all the more poignant and even with like Remembrings her book from 2021 and Nothing Compares I think as well those two texts as well leading up to her death really enlightened people into what a remarkable person and and I mean we did hear the songs I think Sinead in a whole new way particularly Sinead O'Connor's songs we heard them very differently I think after her we heard the kind of the depth of what she had been doing for so long yeah again somebody who wasn't just a singer somebody who Mm. had been an activist had been speaking out about you know um, gay people about AIDS rights um, about abortion about the church Um, you know one of those people that that was proved right had been Mm. saying things that people didn't want to hear and lots of times when women speak and don't want to be heard people talk over them people ridicule them people accuse them of being mad all those usual cliches and Sinead was none of those things but she was right and that was the thing about her and and of course the, the work the extraordinary work the extraordinary voice we'll always still have that yeah uh, the other choice, uh, your your next choice. Uh, let's just play a little bit of of these chaps. a thunk that, <laughs> that we'd get a new Beatles track in yeah. 2023 yeah. aptly named of course Now and Then what yeah. exactly did we get Zara? Well we got Now and Then and even more hilarious a couple of weeks before that Rolling Stones released an album so people were like God like what year is it that we're talking about the Rolling Stones and the Beatles again yeah this came out in uh, November and it was based on uh, John Lennon's demo from 1977 which he recorded in the Dakota building where he lived um, and initially the Beatles had revisited a clout of some of his old demos back in the 90s when they were looking at the anthology um, Mm -hmm. series that they did and they did release singles Free as a Bird and Real Love and Now and Then was supposed to kind of come out as a sort of triptych to that but they really struggled with the recording that they had for Now and Then it was very distorted and disrupted with different elements and they really wanted to kind of work on John's vocals and luckily a little old man called Peter Jackson came along and brought us uh, Get Back 
back and with that he also had commissioned quite a lot of machine assisted learning which if you take the acronym to that we get MAL which people will know as MAL Evans the road manager of the Beatles who's such a warm character and Yeah we back. were talking about that. there's a big book about him uh, out at the Fascinating moment. life story Incredible yeah. life story Very yeah. sad as well um, So they were able with this uh, restoration technology to isolate John's vocals and in the 90s when we see there's a really great um, documentary on YouTube it's only about 12 minutes long of the kind of process and mm. the gestational period of this and we see John or not John because he's uh, he was died in 1980 we see George, Paul and Ringo in the studio with Jeff Lynne working on this and it, there's talks of George Harrison really wanted to abandon it because apparently he didn't really like the song um, and it was just too frustrating but with this technology they were able yeah. to re-go again and with Sean yeah. Lennon involved um, uh, huge, and it's yeah. a very poignant I think something hugely poignant. and calling it now and then is just a oh, it's beautiful, stroke, yeah. stroke of genius yeah. there too um, it, it, in, the, in the world of literature then Deborah Levy always something um, she, no matter what you read from yeah. her she's going to make you think yeah, and, and these are this is a this is a, a in some ways a straightforward novel. If yeah, Deborah Levy does straightforward, and one that novels. has a connection to music as well. Yeah. It's about a musician. Um, it's called August Blue, and it, it's about again. You you mentioned Maestro earlier on. Mm. This is about a a thirty something concert pianist to Elsa Anderson, who's considered a genius until she messes up Rachmaninoff's piano concerto yeah. number two walks off the stage and it kind of essentially just loses the plot so she starts to move around Europe taking work teaching like the children of rich people um, but then encounters in the very start of the book encounters a woman at a market who's buying these dancing mechanical horses and she looks at the woman the woman looks exactly like her so the whole novel is about this kind of doppelganger doubling mirroring kind of thing it moves around there's a little bit of Covid in the book so it moves around Sardinia London um, she goes to find this man who'd been who'd taken her in age six as her mentor um, Albert Goldstein who's a very formidable kind of character. So there's lots of kind of secrecy, lots of wondering who this woman is, trying to find out who she is. And again, all of Levy's work, she says that the title of the book, I saw her speak in Edinburgh at the Book Festival this year and she said, one of the biggest influences on this book is David Lynch's Blue Velvet. There's a little bit of Mulholland Drive, I think, in the book yeah. as well. But it's a very, that kind of filmic slipperiness that you see in all of Debbie Levy's work. She's a phenomenal, whether she's writing those living autobiographies, which are incredible, the series of three, or her fiction. She just doesn't it, write like anybody else. And given that you mentioned uh, David Lynch there, is this going to make it to, it, does it have the smell of screen off it? Yeah, I think so, very much so. Yeah, she's a very kind of key, and the, 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 she's dyed her hair blue as part of this sort mm. of getting away from the world of classical music. So that's, she's a very kind of striking kind of figure. I could yeah. see her as I was reading Yes, yeah, uh, is it Cherry or Cherie by it's, Joanne it's, Beard? I, I think it's Cherry, and again, I don't, I don't think it says nothing says Christmas like a book about terminal illness and assisted dying. <laughs> um, but that's what this very, very small book is about. It's only seventy six pages. It is phenomenal. Um, Joanne Beard, if you don't know her, um, sometimes teaches her essays. She's a very well known American creative nonfiction writer. Has published this book, this collection, this tiny book, mm. Cherry, has been published alongside her collected essays by Serpent's Tale. Um, she writes brilliant non-fiction about all sorts of things a lot of it is very kind of comic but this is again kind of doing what Catherine Scannell did with, with Kick the Latch she she interviewed a, a, the family of a woman called Cherry um, who had decided after getting a diagnosis of a terminal diagnosis before she was 50 that she wanted to go to Jack Kevorkian the famous mm. the so-called doctor death um, to end her life and the book of course is not about it's not about dying it's about living and it's about the people she leaves behind the kind of the, the present focusing on her life and her family the looking back at the life she's had it's full of all these kind of tiny mm. tiny moments and beautiful language like she talks about cancer coming at her it has um, comes at her with talons and a beak and that the kind of the feeling of 
there's a the, the feeling in her chest is sort of it's like inhaling embers. It's sort of a dull pain. She writes brilliantly about pain. Now it sounds super bleak, but it's actually it makes you kind of think about the way you know in COVID we're all looking at it. We can hear a bird song. We're noticing trees, yeah. and it's very much about those small moments and what you notice and what's important and who's important. And again, and it's very yes. life affirming. It's seventy six pages yeah. long, it's, and it's, 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 it's extraordinary. Brevity is the soul of wit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let us um, move on to your final two choices for this uh, as highlights for this year. Jen Gannon, talk to me a bit about rain dogs, first of all. Um, This is described, by the way, as an unconventional love story between a working class single mother, her young daughter and a privileged gay man. Exactly. Well, yes. And, is, and, that a, I mean, is that a fair description or it is, is it a little bit dismissive? A, a little bit, I think. It's a lot deeper than that. It's written by Cash Carraway and she is the cult writer of books like Skin to State and Fleshpot about her life, um, detailing her life as a stripper, mm. living in poverty. And Rain Dogs is like this kind of carnivalesque tragic comic adaptation of those books and it stars this country the comedian uh, Daisy Mae Cooper she's this budding writer who goes by the pen name Costello Jones she's busy ducking and diving through life trying to avoid various bailiffs trying to keep a roof over her and her 10 year old daughter Iris's head she works in a Soho peep show and she's desperately trying to make a legitimate go of writing and a major spanner is thrown into the works when her toxic best friend appears the Withnail-esque fop Selby and he's played by Jack Farthing and he's released from prison and he's ready to insert himself back in Costello and Iris's life and he acts as as Costello's id he's this troublemaker in chief he's an, from an upper class background the son of a disgraced banker and he may have come close to personal annihilation through drinking and drugs but he always has the safety net of affluence to keep yeah. him from the brain and his, you know, he treats, thinks the world is his playground, but he turns Costello's life into an underground car park instead. And it follows their chaotic lives and their platonic love for each other that seeps into hatred. And it's really harrowing at times, but like there's familial abuse, there's grinding poverty, there's death, addiction, suicidal ideation. It can be brutal, but it's very, very funny yeah. and cutting Ryanus right to the bone as yeah. well. And I don't know, I don't know if funny is how we describe Beef, the, ne- the Netflix strain, uh, uh, yeah. series. It, it, phenomenal setup here there. starts with a road rage incident mm, and it yeah. moves from there into the meeting of those two strangers like usually I would say I don't want 10 episodes of a series but with Beef you need these 10 episodes you need to see this story unfold and it was the surprising for me a surprising show of the year and it seeds it the frustration melts the screen nearly. It's It could be like this, you know, Michael Douglas falling down mm. kind of thing where you just have this road rage incident between these two people, Danny played by Stephen Young um, and he's from like this background as a working class immigrant and then you have Amy Lau played by Ali Wong and she's this, you know, entrepreneur and lifestyle guru. So they're both from, you know, completely different yeah. backgrounds and who play this cat and mouse game of revenge against Well, let's people. listen to the, I think this is the first moment, he, 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 this is not the first moment they meet, but he finds out her address mm. and he, he to exact he, revenge. He, he goes her. up to the house to say hello and to kind of lay plans for what he's going to do next. Sorry to bother you. Um, I'm a contractor working down the street. Did you remodel recently? Uh, yeah. Why? Well, I couldn't help but notice that your rooftop conduits don't have supports. It's an electrical hazard. What? I'm not trying to make any money off of you. Um, I just thought I'd come and let you know so you can get your guy to fix it. Hey, uh, you're not some kind of weirdo, right? Because if you are, you should know that I own a gun. Uh, Like I said, miss, I'm just trying to be helpful. Uh, Didn't mean to make you uncomfortable. I'll be on my way. Hey, um, no, no, just wait a second. Okay, um, I'll be right there. 
Hi. Hi. <laughs> it really is such a great setup, and the two of them carry the series. That's beef. Um, uh, yeah, I mean they really choice. do. But I, I just to say, it opens out into something completely different. Yeah. It's not like Kirby enthusiasm. It's not just this cat and mouse game. It opens out into this right. existential crisis and like philosophy about life as an immigrant in America and the American dream. And I think All right. Stephen Young's performance is so nuanced and so complicated. It really deserves the watch. Uh, that was twenty twenty three. Let us make our way to 2024 after these. And here we are then with five minutes to look forward to 2024 <laughs> <laughs> um, with uh, Zara Hederman. Nothing, <laughs> okay, nothing to do. Okay, Zara, let us come to you first. Musically, what is on your radar for post-January? Well, a bit of a trend I've noticed with mine where I'm looking back of a lot of kind of legacy people, the Beatles and such. And in 2024, actually, something I'm looking forward to is a lot of the legacy acts that are coming to play in Ireland. Mm. Um, so you have the likes of poor old Rick Astley, who's album we talked about recently. Um, Simple Minds, She's in Mary Chain. Uh, Girls Aloud, which I'm very excited about. Um, yeah, a, a concert we probably never expected to have. Patti Smith Quartet is coming. Blink-182 yeah. for the Rockers. So there's actually some really good oh, kind of once in a lifetime live performances there, there you go John I've been so nasty to you I feel I have <laughs> ah, to allow you it hasn't been I'm, that bad I'm not going to insist that you pick one highlight from well, 2024 well, I, well, I tell you what's coming in January and February Do, you've please. got Poor Things the Emma Stone movie uh, you've got All of Us Strangers with Meskel and uh, Andrew Scott yeah. American Fiction with Jeffrey Wright and The Zone of Interest that's the uh, all in, time for, all in time like for Oscar January season. January and February, all in time for Oscar season. But the film that I'm most looking forward to is uh, Andrew, uh, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers with Paul Giamatti as a middle-aged classics teacher at a private school in New England in the 1970s who has to spend Christmas with a couple of students who are not going home. They're called The Holdovers and he forms a bond with one of them. And uh, together with the school cook, who's played by Devine Joy Randolph, they, have a, they go on a life-changing adventure, let's say. I absolutely loved this film. Yeah, you've seen a preview I've of seen it. When, when, it is, is, when, when is it due it's out? It's opening on the 19th of January. Alright, so it will be in time be for in, Oscar yeah, season For as Oscar well. season, but Jim Addy's never been better. I can't wait for people to see this movie. It's a hoot. Oh, right, okay. Well, that's a, that's a very a strong recommendation indeed. Uh, on the box. What not have, not what? a hoot. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, True Detective yeah. is back. True Detective uh, Night oh. Country. All right. So they are wrestling True Detective from its very masculine earlier Incarnation, so it's the the anthology show, yeah. and now it has a female director at the helm in the shape of uh, Isa Lopez, a Mexican director, and she has coaxed one Clarice Starling herself, Jodie Foster, to the smaller screen, and it's set in a town called Ennis, where the sun sets on December seventeenth, and it won't rise again until after the New Year, so it's the perfect place for things to go bump in the night and during the day, and on the third day of night, uh, she is called to the scene of a strange kind of crime where at the I think it's this. Salal Arctic Research Place and it's home to eight scientists who spend their days there investigating Arctic biology and geology and the impacts of climate change and all eight are missing. 
um, and that's where it starts. But it could it that's also a, have something to do in, with isn't it? a missing Native woman as well. So it kind of combines the two. There's a lot of supernatural kind of elements to it, like in the very first season of True Detective. So they're trying to mirror the, the classic first season, but this season make it more feminine. If you like the terror that Dan Simon exactly, did, which was yeah. so Have you seen some of this? I've seen yeah. a couple of episodes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you're, 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 you're throwing that in. I've thrown that so in. So you're stealing a further yeah. recommendation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great supporting yeah. cast yeah. as well. But there's uh, around Fiona Shaw and the supporting cast and, Chris, right. and Christopher Eccleston and Sinead what have you got for us? Uh, I'm going to pick a couple, two non-fiction, two fiction. Mm. Um, two of my favourite non-fiction writers, Maggie Nelson, uh, who's an incredible writer. She's got a book of essays uh, called Like Love, uh, essays on Prince, Judith Butler, Hilton Isles, um, her, the brilliant essay that she gave myself and Kim Gordon for this woman's work. Yeah. Um, Leslie Jemison, a writer I love, who's published amazing essays. She's got a book called Splinters about the breakdown of her marriage and early motherhood. I've yeah, read I it already. We'll be speaking Ph- to her in, in February. And I think one of the books that everyone's going to be talking about next year is Long Island. Oh. Which oh, is yeah. a sequel to Brooklyn yeah, by Colin yeah. Tobin, um, which I have and haven't started, but I cannot wait to see what's happening to to Eilish and what's happening to those characters. Mm. And and he's just, I mean, he's a magnificent writer, so I think there's going to be a lot of interest in that. Sinead is far too modest to mention her own book, book. I was I just, don't, which is what <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading. I was just going to That's say you've I'm left out. You've left 20 out. quid under the table. <laughs> Hagstone, uh, a novel. Sinead. It's a novel. Yeah, it's out in it's out in April with the Fourth Estate. So the proofs are out in the world at the moment. So the terror is very, very real as people start to read it. And what world are you bringing us into? Because um, I mean, you know, it has been essays and anthologies yeah, to, to this set, point, um, really, hasn't it? It's set on an island. That's I don't say where the island is. It's twelve hours off island. The main character is an artist. She does like performance and durational art. There's a strange sound on this island that only some people can hear. And um, she gets a letter in the post one day from a group called the Innings, who are a group of women who've cut themselves off from the rest of the world, and they ask her for something. All ah, right, don't remember the twenty-year-old flop down the book <laughs> on my desk, please. <laughs> so that I can have a read of it. Thank you to so much to all four of you for uh, looking back and looking 